Welcome to One Tough Podcast. I'm joining you, like always, by my man Carlo, the producer. Hello. Today, we're pleased to have with us, he's my good friend, Mr. Dylan Howell. I don't have many friends, but... Uh, you do. <laughs> he's a journalist, a TV producer, five-time winner of the National Entertainment Journalism Award. You got a lot of shit there, uh, Dylan. Uh, you? They're just trophies. Well, they welcome. Welcome. And I personally have been involved with Dylan in a couple of investigative shows we've done that uh, creep murderer Hernandez. Remember Hernandez, him? Hernandez, sure, mm. yeah. From the New England Patriots. We think he murdered a few more even. And we uh, we put together a great uh, little uh, TV thing. And what is the TV thing that we've been doing together? First of all, I want to ask you about that. Well, I think I met you a couple of years ago, Bo, and I was just enamored with your story. Yeah. You are the one tough cop. Oh, come on. It's about hey, you now. No, 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 no. It's <laughs> always about you. Uh, listen, we, uh, we, look, we like to look at crimes and try and figure out whether or not the investigations have been botched in some instances. Mm -hmm. We like to look at crimes that may not have been solved mm -hmm. and try and find a resolution for the victims of these crimes. And we also like to take a look at crimes that have been headline generators mm -hmm. and try and piece together what's happened to those crimes in time. Mm. We always know about these crimes uh, through the mass media and we talk about them, but they, those crimes tend to live on, don't they? You're, you're, like a, you're like a friggin' detective. I mean, you were never on the NYPD, but to me, you're a great <laughs> detective because doing a few shows with you, matter of fact, we're going to be flying together to Medellin. What's that place called? Medellin. 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 Colombia. Yeah, Colombia. Yeah, that uh, district of Colombia, the, the country <laughs> of Colombia. We're going to be, what are we doing down here again? We're, we are going shortly, we are going down there to do a show uh, called Notorious Crime Lords, ah. which is investigating El Chapo versus Pablo Escobar, ah. and who really was the bigger of the two drug lords. Uh -huh. So in order for us to do that, Carlos... Well, the other guy was taller. Uh, uh, Escobar was taller than the, than the yeah, munchie yeah. I'm What's talking it? more about perhaps <laughs> volume of... Uh, but, Carlos, I've, I've got to take him down to Medellin. How do you think he'll, he'll cope? I, I mean, I love Medellin. I uh, love yeah, well, you love for other reasons, Carlo. I'm not going there for your reasons, Carlo. I just came back from La, uh, La Catenga, Cartagena. Cartagena is beautiful. That's a beautiful place. Beautiful city. Right uh, on the whoa, 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 whoa. I'm a detective. I don't think about those other things you guys think about. I'm thinking about There's what we're going to do there. We're yeah, gonna be, the architecture. It's a very colonial style. Well, we're going to uh, be talking to uh, Pablo Escobar people. We are going to be talking to people that knew him, uh -huh. that were involved in the cartel that we're he operated. Bringing down, we're bringing down my friend, my really dear friend, Bernard Carrick, the former commissioner who Bola loves. He, he got a bad little rap there. But, and, uh, and Dylan Howard loves too. Well, well, also Dylan Howard loves it too. But we've got to bring it back a little bit. First of all, I met Dylan. I have a very dear friend for 25 years. And I'll say it out loud. He's one of my dear friends. And his name is David Pecker. He used to head up uh, uh, AMI. Is he still over there with he us? He still is, He's doing yes. a transfer. It was sold. Uh, but David Pecker is a, truly a personal friend of mine. He put together some empire. I mean, magazines, uh, circulation, what, 22 million circulation? Yeah, I mean, the, the business has spawns uh, multiple 
print products in the celebrity and entertainment category, the active lifestyle category of men's and uh, then muscle and fitness. And yeah. he recently purchased a company called uh, the Adventure Sports Network, which has uh, enthusiast uh, magazines such as Powder and Surfer and things like that, uh, live events. It's uh, American Media is one of the largest publishers in America. You know what it is with the advent of all this social shit that's online and all that crap. You have to you have to revert it over to to meet up with the demands of the idiots that walk around with their little cell phones like you do sometimes, Carl. And uh, they <laughs> all they do you is, a bad all they do here. is look all they do is look on their cell phone, including my kids. I think the phones are glued to their friggin' heads. I personally like to pick it up. I like to look at it. I like to feel touch the, the magazine. There is a romance about magazine. Yeah, I don't know. Get traditional ink, journalism. Getting that ink on your hands and you're at the beach. I like reading. I like looking at pictures. You know, sometimes your little device, the sun is brooming down. But if you're looking at a paper, I like to open up the New York Post, even though the Post don't like me anymore because of some reason. I don't know. I like to feel touchy. I don't like to read the, the news on the on the little thing. On the thing. screen. You like yeah. But, but, you know, so, so American Meter, my friend David Packer was really responsible for developing it. And years ago, the first time I did anything, I don't think you were there. I've read it. I, I remember your. They actually sent me to Boulder, Colorado. I actually went into the house where Jean Bonnet was killed. Really? And I actually, there was two college kids that were renting it. And I went there, and I had my own determination, which I can't talk about because I think I can get sued. I have my own opinions yeah, about can, the Trump. I'll, I'll have to be the bleep. Yeah, you'll it. be the bleeper. <laughs> so, uh, Carla, you know, I've been a detective my whole life, and there's some contributing factors that give me my my feelings about it. And just the advent of what happened when a little girl is, your little daughter is murdered, you get on a plane, you fly away the next day. A lot of things weren't right. Mm -hmm. So I have my own opinions about who, what, where. But I can't bring it up because somebody got sued for a lot of money for giving their opinions. And I keep telling you not to. Okay, I'm not going to. I'm do not it a today. lawyer, but I keep telling you not to. But personally, they actually sent me out to Boulder, Colorado, where I actually went into the home there. I actually looked at all the uh, autopsy report, and I got a feeling sitting in front of the house for many hours reading autopsy report, and. You got to say something. I got to say something. I have something which a lot of people don't have this sixth sense about the feelings that lead into real evidence. They have to develop the evidence and all that. And uh, my feelings are, uh, you know, we'll, we'll maybe revisit this another time. But, but, but I wanted to say something about that because I just actually came back from Paris and London. Yeah. I spent two weeks there. I'm working on a podcast with regards to the death of Princess Diana. Uh -huh. And there is a lot to be said about going to the scene of a crime. Oh, you gotta feel it. You've gotta feel it. And and I was blown away to go to the tunnel where she died. Mm -hmm. um, let me ask you this question before yeah. I get into that. How do you? Th what do you think caused Princess Diana's car accident? Well, I think it was the uh, driver was trying to get away from the paparazzi, and he went into non-prudent speeds that he couldn't control the vehicle. Advent of the accident. That that's my, and I really honestly didn't look at it deep enough to know any other contributing factors. I know there's a lot of uh, conspiracy thoughts involved with this, but my feelings are until I look at the whole picture, that's just a surface shot, a snapshot of my feelings. 
feelings is that they were trying to get away from paparazzi yeah. and he lost control of the car. That was my feeling. So I spent two weeks in Paris, yeah. spoke to eyewitnesses still some 22 years ago who remember that night yeah. vividly uh, in 1997. Uh, believe it or not, if you actually go to the tunnel, you can still see marks wow. on the side uh, of the uh, of the tunnel, the concrete pylons mm. where the Mercedes Benz that she was in collided. You can actually see the the the, the, steel, scrapings, the yeah. scrapings and the steel rim. And w- through forensic tests that we did on location in Paris, uh-huh. um, we're able to disprove a lot of these conspiracy theories. Really. Well, you should have brought in a real detective like me. Well, I had a detective. I, I did have a detective with me, a, mm. a gentleman by the name of Colin McLaren, who is a uh, an Australian homicide detective, oh, which is not on. as they good don't as have America. Murders in Australia, come on! They do have murders. Do this guy really? went undercover in come the on, mafia. You talk about an NYPD homicide detective. Anyway, let greatest me in the world. The greatest in the world. I know, I know, I know, I know. I, I apologize. Don't take offense. <laughs> I, I like all homicide detectives, well, provided, well, I just felt, provided they're not investigating me. I just felt a little bad, Carlo. He didn't ask me to come over there. He brought one of his mates over there. Did you know I went to Australia once in my life? Really? Whereabouts? A place called Melbourne. That's where I'm from. Now, I'll tell you a story. I want to Real hear fast, this story. story. It's about you, this podcast. So I get a call from a, a person, major guy in finance. He gets involved with some beautiful gal from uh, Melbourne in London, and he's having an affair. She's married. He's married three kids. All of a sudden, the the girl and her husband start to blackmail him. That right. They're going to notify the bank. They're going to notify his family. So unless you give this money, blackmail back and forth, back and forth. So I get involved. I bring John Q. Kelly, my friend, mm-hmm. the Great lawyer involved. He's a great lawyer, but he's not a good detective. Uh, he hires me for that. He, but he's an excellent lawyer. So now we get in communication with a, a lawyer that represents this crew out of Melbourne. Now, I never realized Melbourne has a little crime element there. They have, like, Lebanese guys with tattoos up their necks. A lot of Italians in Australia. Yeah. More than there was a gangland war So when I was living there. So now I tell... John Q. Kelly, he flies out ahead of me. I'm going to go to Melbourne to meet with these guys. You now, just these, load up the private jet lawyer, out of uh, Teterboro. This lawyer, no, this was where I went. That <laughs> I went with that Qantas stuff. So all of a sudden, John flies out ahead of me. That was the worst thing he did. And he met with this lawyer. Told him, well, I got a group out there that can help you out, can solve this problem. So John meets with him, and they tell John, half a million dollars, you'll never see this guy again. So John, <laughs> I'm, I'm in L.A. now. I'll get you my next leg of the flight. John's there already. He goes, don't worry about it. I handle this. I said, John, they just said to you, they're going to give you a half a million dollars, and you'll never see this guy. You know what that means? They're going to whack the freaking guy, John. I said, go to your room, lock your door, put a chair there. I'll be out in another 14 hours. Do not answer the door. Do not communicate anymore. So I get to the hotel. I knock on the door. He's got the chair against the door. (laughs) She goes, oh, we have a meeting with these guys uh, at 6 o'clock. I said, good, because we're catching them next flight out. The next flight out, I think, was at 8 or 9 o'clock. So I go with him. I'm dressed in a suit, and we go to meet these guys at the back of a bar. And I don't remember exactly, but I had the town car outside the black car that we were in. I said, you just stay right here. So now I walk in the back. We see his table. There's about eight guys with tattoos, big muscles, and, I mean, real bad-looking asses. So next thing is I go like this. I says, yeah, how you doing, guys? The one guy goes, wait, 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 mate. 
Fox News, Fox News. I said, yeah, yeah, forget about that. You're that detective from New York. I can't believe Melbourne, Australia knew who I was. Yeah, I said, forget about that bullshit. I said, this guy here met with you yesterday? First of all, he's got no power. Anything he says, do they spell over, O-V-E-R here in Australia? Because whatever he told you, it's over. There's no deal, there's no money, and it's over. And I just turned around, and I'm with John. I said, don't turn, don't, don't turn around. Just keep walking. I went in there so fast. These guys didn't even have time to pull their guns or react. Got in the car, get back to the hotel. Got to the uh, hotel. The phones are ringing. Get to the airport. We're running through to make the flight. I had to get a cup of koala bears and stuff and kangaroos <laughs> for the kids. You know, I'm running through the airport. They, we, we missed the flight. I showed my badge. we got to make the flight. We get on the plane on the Qantas first class. I put my green pajamas on. And I had a couple of drinks. Pop, what are those things that make you go to sleep? Xanax. I had popped Valium. a Xanax. No, the other one. Ativan, Valium. Uh, 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 val not Valium. Uh, 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 yeah, whatever the hell it was to make me go to sleep. I woke up and I was in Los Angeles. The moral of the story is that you can solve things and when you go in person. But here was the end, the end result. We ended up suing civilly. The guy and criminally right. for blackmail, and it went went away and all that. But that was my one visit to Melbourne. I think I was in Melbourne for six hours. So that's my only. Well, contact you had a good result. Well, the good result was I I stifled John Quinn Kelly out. I said, "Look, I'm the detective. You're the lawyer." And that was my only involvement in in in, in Australia. So back to Diana. Yeah. Yeah. Just back to Diana. Yeah. The interesting thing is, everyone thinks that the paparazzi was right behind the Mercedes Benz. These were paparazzi. Paparazzi, uh, paparazzos on motorcycles that were like 50 cc's. So there's no way they could keep up with a Mercedes traveling at 200 miles per hour. That's the speed they have. Yeah. And so she's gone careering into the 13th pylon. But what caused her to go into that? This podcast that we're releasing in September will reveal for the very first time that she had a collision with another vehicle a vehicle that was entering through a slip lane, and we spoke to this person. What's a slip lane? Like a, like a emerging lane. Okay, good. Um, he was driving a white Fiat Uno, this driver, a gentleman by the name of Lee Van Tan. And I went to his house and I said, you've got questions to answer. And he spoke for the first time in 22 years. Wow. About what happened that night. And can you believe this? He was driving a white Fiat Uno, he collided with the Mercedes-Benz. That night, he spray-painted his car red. Mm-hmm. So, so he knew that he did something wrong. A little cover-up. Smashing wide open a 22-year cover-up. Wow. Bro. I got to listen to this podcast. How exciting is that? Wow, 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 wow. Well, that's why you're, That's what you're all about, Dilly. You're all about finding the stuff that and uncover stuff that wasn't out there. Now, how did you get... Let's back up a little bit, Radio. Dylan. How did you get involved with journalism in Australia? I started my career as a sports reporter covering um, local football, Australian football. Y you mean soccer? No, Australian football. It's a cross between rugby and Gaelic football. Oh, full contact. Like full contact. None of this where you wear pads and helmets <laughs> bullshit that you guys do here in America. Ooh, ooh, that uh, sounds like a body tough... on body. That's what wow. it is. No teeth on these guys. Uh, well, I've got teeth and I played, but I do have a couple of scars. I've got <laughs> big one on my elbow. I've got one under here. I've got one under here. Yeah. Uh, it's a pretty dangerous sport, nevertheless. Uh, I was covering local football and I've always had a scent for scandal, Bo. Yeah. I, I love... I love 
trying to uncover the stories that people don't want you to write about. And I don't give a shit whether people like me or not as a result of the journalism that I practice. So uh, I was covering this epidemic of violence that was happening on the football field in Australia. And it progressed, my career progressed from working for Murdoch at uh, his uh, paper you're called good The Geelong friends Advertiser. With, you're good friends with Never Mr. met Murdoch. him once before, never met him once in, in my life. Oh. But I, I worked for his paper called The Geelong Advertiser. Uh, I went to cover sport. Then I decided I wanted to work in television. Moved to Tasmania, that tiny little island. Tasmanian devil caller. <laughs> yeah, yeah, tiny little island. Covered... Uh, Started covering politics and police, uh, then moved back to Melbourne where I worked back covering sport. Then I got unceremoniously fired because, yet again, I did a scandalous story that pissed people off about drug use at a professional sports club at the Australian Football League, we as a network were the broadcaster of the sport. So there was a lot of corporate pressure for a scapegoat and I was that scapegoat. So I got fired and I said, screw it, and I moved to America. Mm-hmm. So how did you end up meeting with David? So I was working for Reuters in Times Square here in New York. Yeah. Um, and at the time there was an editor of the National Enquirer Uh, I was freelancing, doing some uh, investigations for them. And they said, do you want to run this website called Radar Online? And I said, absolutely not. What year is this? This is 2009. Mm -hmm. And I said, absolutely not. I have no interest in celebrity journalism. Zero. I was then sent to Turkey for an Australian magazine to hunt down the professional golfer Greg Norman, who was who had just divorced Chris Evert, the tennis player. Yes, I remember. And the magazine in Australia wanted me to, to, to keep an eye on Greg Norman's uh, actions and habits, habits and yeah. behaviours in Turkey. And I said, on my way back from Turkey, I'll stop off in LA and, and go to the Radar Online office. And I walked in and it was a hub of activity. It was a newsroom like I'd never seen before. Who owned it at that time? David Pecker. Oh, David had it. Then. Yes, yep. Uh, it was a hub of activity and uh, there was, you know, 40 or 50 journalists and I said, this is where I want to be. Action. You saw action. I saw action and I stayed there. I had my place in, uh, in New York. I flew back one weekend, boxed it all up, moved out to LA and spent three or four years out there. Well, but obviously you were the shining diamond there because you elevated yourself up to a position was you were, you were the man running AMI. Yeah, well, I mean, listen, our goal as, a, as journalists are to shine light on dark places, to provide the audience, whether it's on a podcast. It's all entertainment. Whether it's a podcast, whether it's a television show, whether it's a magazine, whether it's digital, provide them an insight into the gilded life of those that they follow. And entertainment journalism can get a bit of a bad rap. Right? Oh, of course. A lot of people don't like it. People mm-hmm. tend to snub their nose at it. But let me tell you this. But everybody watches it. Everyone everybody watches it. it. Everyone yeah. consumes it. And, and, then, it wouldn't and that's exist. why they have uh, on the major channels at 7 o'clock or 7.30, Entertainment Tonight, Entertainment This. And it's all about dirt and oh, did you hear about this? And people tune into it. So it's an interest factor to America. It loves this nonsense. There is, there is a demand to meet. And we meet that appetite. But in the course of entertainment journalism, you know, you uncover some... 
big, big, meaningful stories. You had one with that guy, Mel, Mel Gibson. What was that Yeah, about? I got the audio tapes of Mel Gibson. What happened with that? What this, was this it? Was, Bring this, the audience in. What's so, this? so Mel Gibson, as everyone knows, was pulled over uh, in Malibu, I think a couple of years before I got the audio tapes, and I think he called a police officer sugar tits. Sugar um, tits. Yes, and that was a big controversy at the time. What's wrong with sugar tits? That's well, sweet I, talk. I don't think it was. I think that was quite the, the headline at the time. TMZ broke that story. <laughs> a couple of years later, um, I get this random phone call. It's a great story. Um, and this guy says, I've got, I've got these audio tapes of Mel Gibson screaming and ranting anti-Semitic rants, um, threatening to kill Oksana Grigorieva, his then fiance and baby mama, um, on a rampage, on a tear. He was a bit of an alcoholic, yes. And, and this source wouldn't give the tapes to me and was always calling from a blocked number. He would call at 3, 4 o'clock in the morning, and I remember vividly I was living at a place called Pally House, which is a hotel in, in LA at the time, and... He would call in the middle of the night and play me little snippets. And I was reporting about the existence of the tapes because it was quite clear that it was Mel Gibson on the tapes. And it started to make national news that these tapes existed, but we didn't get our hands on the tapes. The actual tapes. One night. Were you, were you recording it when he was playing the tape? I think California is a two-party consent good. state, Bo, so I don't I think I was you. recording that. I no. test you on that one. Good. Um, you know what that means, right, Carlo? I certainly do. Okay. The both parties have to know. Exactly. So I wouldn't have been recording those, Bo. Uh, but he accidentally called me from an unblocked number one night, realized what he'd done, shit himself. I didn't call it back. I waited till the next day, got his phone number. Did reverse calls, yeah. Found out where he lived. He's a turned detective up, too, you know that. Knocked on the door, unmasked the source. Source realised he was in a bind. I knew who he was. I knew his connection to the story. Wow. He knew that I wanted the tapes and I walked away and did a deal with him and got those tapes. And those were, that, I think there was nine audio tapes and... Uh, we published the first one on a Friday afternoon, literally within hours of getting those audio recordings. And it was, we were at, um, on Wilshire Boulevard at the time in a high-rise building, and you could see Hollywood reverberate once that first tape went out wow. because, you know, he was, he, was, he was slamming Jews, he was racist, he was swearing, he was uh, misogynistic, um, he was... Everything that many people expected Mel Gibson to be, but, but we heard it for the first time. Yeah. And things like that need to be exposed. Just like Charlie Sheen, when um, we, we report, I actually worked on an investigation into Charlie Sheen for three years. Wow. Um, and I knew that he was HIV positive. And I called my top staff into a, a news meeting and I said, let's take a vote. Do we publish this story that Charlie Sheen, as after HIV. being fired uh, from two and a half men as, H, as HIV, there were seven people in the room and the vote was 6-1. Yes. Six yes, one no. I was the dissenting voice. I said, we don't publish the story. Mm. Who cares if the guy's got HIV? It's not in the public's interest. And... As the boss, even though I lost the vote, I said, this ain't a, this ain't a democracy. It's my Good, decision. Well. But over the next two years, I discovered what I consider to be a criminal conspiracy in which 
Charlie Sheen would have unprotected sex. With women, yeah. With women, men, and transsexuals. Men too? Which we've published. What's a transsexual? Um, Is that like trisexual? It's a man that decides to become a woman or a woman decides to become a man. Do they still have a thing? It, it's a very complicated. Oh, I don't know. We'll probably means. get in trouble for okay. not understanding the right pronouns <laughs> and the such. Um, so what happened was um, we spent two years standing up that Sheen was orchestrating this conspiracy whereby, say, Bo, he wanted to have sex with you, you'd turn up at his house, you would have to sign a non-disclosure agreement that prevented you from being able to sue him in any case. You didn't know he had HIV, you had sex with Mm -hmm. him, you later found out that he had HIV, you could have been exposed to the HIV, but you couldn't sue him. Because wow. you'd signed this contract. I don't know. And is then that it goes, really that enforceable? I don't know. And then it would go to mediation and these yeah. people would get payoffs. Right. So once we established that there was this systematic... Um, people were suing him when they learned it. Yeah. And he was paying them And off. there was this systematic plan in place mm-hmm. to avoid the news getting out. That's when I said we have to publish this story. And he denied that he had HIV. His lawyer was... They sued you, right? No. No, I mean, they did sue me eventually, but, then but not were, on that, and he dropped his lawsuit. Yeah, because then if it was my lawyer, I'd say, well, request a blood test. So they never sued over HIV. In fact, Charlie gave me an interview directly after it, but they lied through their teeth for years. Mm. I, don't, I like some lawyers. I like other lawyers. I think they're paid liars. Oh, well, we know that. We know that. I mean, it's good to have a good paid liar on your side because it's all about winning and, and that's why they're hired. And even you get a scumbag like my friend Harvey Weinstein. He's gone through every lawyer, including that little creep, Ben Brofman. And uh, he's gone. Now we fired this You're not other. a fan of Ben Brofman. No. You know what? I've given him so many cases. I've given him Puff Daddy, Jay-Z, uh, Bell Weiss. He's made millions of dollars off my ass, and he never, ever gave us any investigative work. And after that, I, I don't like the guy. Then when he when he was, when he was uh, coming out, talking about Harvey Weinstein being this good person, and he has daughters, too, and I called him up, and I said, you know what? You're a fucking creep for, for defending this prick. Would you let your daughters work for this slime bag? But, and, but, but let's put it in perspective. Perspective. Yeah. And, and, you know, you and I both knew yeah. Harvey, but we had no idea the breadth of what was going oh, I, on. I did because I almost punched him out once. We were gonna I do had a, no idea. We were going to do a, you know, and I'm condescending side of him, not just the sexual side of him. I'm talking about him being condescending to men. Say if we were going to do a TV series, you and I were going to produce one. He, he gets very indignant and he becomes very condescending. Like he said, I was at a breakfast meeting and he goes like this, you know, Bo, I want to do this with you. You want to do it with Scorsese? I'll ruin you in Hollywood. You'll never do it. I said, I'll reach across this table, punch you in your fucking mouth right now. I wasn't kidding. He goes, you're dreading me? I said, listen, this ain't a movie. I'll bust your fucking ass. And that's exactly how I talked to Harvey Weinstein because he's a punk and he belittled a lot of men and women in Hollywood. Oh, listen, I watched, I, I watched how he interacted with individuals and it was certainly not how I would interact he's with individuals. Punk. And you know he's a punk because no one smacked him in the head and that's what he needed was a good smack in the head. But what really annoys me and pisses me off is that um, – Anyone that had an association with him, and everyone in the entertainment industry did, was immediately tarred when the allegations came out Mm. and the liberal media was desperate to try and pin 
anything on anybody that was associated with him and because he and I had produced hours and hours and hours of television all of a sudden I was linked to to Harvey Weinstein yeah, well, and and the liberal media decided that I became a target I should well, become a target well it was simple when I ran for mayor of New York City and then all of a sudden my firm was hired by Becca Epstein which is a major law firm for the O'Reilly investigation and the Gretchen Carlson thing my firm was hired everyone has the opportunity and right for a defense my company does defense work. Same thing if you became a victim, a target of a lawsuit. Your law firm hires. We get directed by the lawyers from the law firm. Now, I go back with Roger Ailes, God rest his soul. I didn't know all about what was going on with all these things. And because I'm a private investigator, investigator that creep, what was his name? New York Gabriel Magazine. Sherman. Gabriel Sherman, that little punk. He writes an, uh, a thing with his uh, a book about Bo Deedle was ahead of all dark black operations, 17th yeah. floor. I never, ever, I call him up. I say, hey, Gabriel, let me tell you once. First of all, I'm a private investigator. If I put you under surveillance, kiss my ass. I'm going to tell you once. I never surveilled you. I never did any work for Roger Ailes other than my firm working for the law firm on these investigations, which is my business. And you put in there that I'm, I was following you and your wife for Roger Ailes. I said, maybe your wife's friggin' boyfriend was... Uh, was was following you, and I said, you punk. I said, if you put it in there, I'm going to look at libel and slander. I never did anything, but yet it came in the New York Times. He and they put it in print. Bo Deedle was the was the private investigator working for Roger Ailes. I never ever worked for Roger Ailes, but I could. And then your friends, the Murdochs, they drink the Kool Aid, and I was never allowed to go back on Fox because of that. You know, it, it, it's. I think the country has become so divided that so too is the media. And there is very much today a left and a right. Oh, yeah. And a lot of people don't really understand that you can work for a publication that might well be positioned slightly right yeah. and not be right yourself mm. and be a liberal. No one knows my political allegiance and I've kept it that way since I've been to America. I don't have a dog in this fight. I don't vote in this country. No, it's country. like the FBI. I mean, when the FBI heads come out to be in collusion to get against Trump, whether you like Donald Trump or not, I know him 40 years. I think he says some fibs. He's a narcissist, but he's, he's leading our country for That's my opinion. But you as an FBI agent, the policing of this country, you should not take sides in it. you got to do your job the way you're supposed to. If you have affidavit for a warrant, to go and infringe on someone's rights, that warrant better be correct. And if that warrant is not, and when you overheard talking about insurance policy, you know, I mean, it, it, it gets my insides. The FBI are like the police. You are not political. You do your job and you let the law abide your job. And it pisses me off because there's so many fine FBI agents that are tainted by these couple of creeps in there, mm. you know? Mm. I think the media, to a large extent, also is tainted. You know, to your point, yeah. uh, Gabe Sherman may be, you know, misleading the the truth about uh, about me about the work that you did for Fox yeah. uh, over the course of the years. You know, uh, I think someone from the New York Times once called me Harvey Weinstein's chief media enabler. Like, what sort of a sick comment is that? Well, that, well, that, that 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 makes the that makes the perception yeah. that I was somehow complicit in whatever actions he was involved in. Yeah. Of course I wasn't. It's just absolute frog shit. Well, they, and they it, get away with it. And, and they get away with it. And then, you know, what really upsets me is, look, I was a Fox News contributor, paid contributor, 
solely for Fox for 12 years. You know, as far as whatever it is, Sean Hannity's one of my dearest friends. I like Bill O'Reilly and, you know, and, and, and these were my friends. But as far as what I did on there, I was a person that looked at both sides of it. I always look at both sides. I weigh it out. And to. I've become, as I've gotten older, I've become more compassionate rather than the other side. And you got to weigh things out. You can't go in there because I like Donald Trump, what he's doing in the country. Right away, I can't go around with a, a bumper sticker saying, Trump, my windows will be broken in New York City. Then when you look at the news, when the good things are happening, jobs, employment, everything, the economy, and you could turn on every channel. No one says anything. The only place you see it is Fox. That's wrong also. The news should be a vehicle for giving information, not your opinions. I don't think there's any proportionality whatsoever in the coverage of these well well thought of and well, and must be discussed topics mm. like me too but there's no proportionality into Don't, it you mentioned me too and you mentioned you know how uh you were caught up in you know being tainted by your association with uh harvey weinstein uh, and you've also spoken previously about your integrity and you know how you you know didn't want to disclose Charlie Sheen's private medical records and things like that. And when you talk about the hype of media and Me Too, uh, where do you think it went wrong? Where do you think like now it seems like people are just going after another scalp to collect rather than just yeah, it's about how many heads scandal. you can get. Um, media outlets, some media outlets and a number of journalists exist for that purpose and that purpose only, and that is to try and bring down people. Now, there are people that should be brought down. Jeffrey Epstein, a good example this week mm -hmm. um, about uh, how someone abused his position, abused his wealth and fortune to be able to do heinous things on innocent victims. He will be held to account. But again, there is no proportionality in the debate. And I think that the media has become a less objective, more subjective, the mainstream media. I'm talking about many outlets. Um, and there is this dogged determination to try and bring people down. Like, like you mentioned, Tall poppy Je syndrome. Jeffrey Epstein is a you know, true criminal. And he's lumped in the same category as somebody like Louis C.K., there is no proportionality. Or me. No, and it's rape also. There's rape allegations against Epstein, and that wasn't that wasn't some of the other allegations. You know, the important thing I, people have to realize is that... But we'll never win this debate, though. No. So let's put this into perspective. We're three guys sitting around a table on a podcast, and we'll say that there's no proportionality in the debate, and we will get criticized for it. We we'll never, even, ever yeah. win the debate. Nope, nope. You can't even voice an opinion. You can't voice an opinion no, and, without and what, being critical. What, what I've gone with, is even, I've even gone a step further after being directed that I hate women because I worked for Roger Ailes for the defense of Fox News. I love women. What we put together, I hired the head of the EEOC, the attorney. We have a platform we put together, a secure platform, where people can report sexual abuse, uh, harassment, anything, to an independent, transparent investigation. We put together a secure website for corporations that we're in now. People can report it because they always would say, I don't want to report to HR because the HR knows that guy, and I'm up for, uh, I'm up for a, a promotion. So I actually put together a vehicle where people can tra have show transparency and report things. I love to help people. My whole life has been helping yeah. people. And if you're a victim, 
You come to me, I protect victims. And to be accused on the other side for doing what I do as my profession, that's horrible. But I think it's also because you're perceived to be right and therefore the liberal media wants to attack you. Yes. And Carlo, this is, you know, it's taken a lot of reflection on my behalf because when your name, like, is in the news like it is for me and for Bo, it can take its toll on you. But it can also not. It cannot take its toll on you if you realise who you are as a person, mm-hmm. what you represent, and you're comfortable living in your own skin. And I know who I am and, and what I represent to people around me and to my family and friends and what I do outside of my professional career to help others. And I wake up very comfortable being the person that I am every morning. Mm. Others might not. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of people, uh, the listening audience, don't know the the magnitude of, of of my friend here. Dylan Howard represents a media organization that reaches sixty eight million people per month with all the vehicles, with radar, all the all the magazines. All this is a massive media platform, and uh, I mean it's something that is is remarkable that you you're like you head this thing up. So when you write an article, I mean a lot of eyes are on it. I mean that's a lot of controlling factor because what they read they believe. So in reality, you can change if people see the negative side of it. You can produce it out there with your media, and people can get a different perspective of it rather than getting just one direction of it. Well, I think that's part of the democracy that we live. That's part of the First Amendment. People should be able to get a variety of opinions, a variety of news articles, and if we didn't have that, we wouldn't exist. We'd be communist. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, you've, you've, you've done a lot of documentaries and all kinds of TV shows. What's, what's some of the projects you worked on and what's coming in for the future? A lot. I mentioned the Princess Diana podcast. I also have a podcast investigating Marilyn Monroe's death. Wow. That's coming out uh, in August. It's going to talk about the president. It's going to talk about the Kennedys and, and their Robert involvement. Kennedy and Robert like Kennedy doing like a double, double dildo there. I don't know about that, oh, but okay. we're certainly going to look uh, deep into deep, Marilyn's deep, yeah. uh, famous red book. Yeah. Um, we'll leave it at that. Uh, I'm looking at JFK Jr.'s uh, oh, car crash. You know, uh, sorry, sorry. Uh, you know, plane crash. Well, you know, you hit something. I met JFK Jr. through David Pecker. On Thursday mm-hmm. nights, you know, I'm up in Rayos there. I'll never forget this young man. What a beautiful young man. He used to come riding up on his bicycle, and he chained his bicycle to the stop sign out front. Really? Always pleasantries with John Kennedy Jr. When 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 he went down with that plane, I really felt as though a really big loss. And simply, I could have voted for him tomorrow if he'd be president of the United States. He probably States. would have been president of the United States. <laughs> yeah, he would have been president. So we're doing a podcast on JFK wow. Jr. and that crash and trying yeah. to look at um, a total recap of that particular yeah. crash. And then we're doing a podcast on John Bonet Ramsey, your popular topic. But I'm more excited about some books I've got coming out. Oh, well, tell me about them. I have uh, a, the Diana book is coming out, Diana K. Sold. It's a whole book? It's a book with uh, homicide detective Colin McLaren. 
Oh, Colin Hall? Colin Hall, yes. Okay. Uh, that book's coming out. I also have a book uh, that I co-authored on a poker ring that invo- that ran in Hollywood. Oh, let's talk about this. That was, the ins- that was the inspiration for Molly's Game, yeah. which was really a complete whitewash. Really? A whitewash of the real story and what actually took place. And I've authored a book called The Billion Dollar Hollywood Heist, The A-List Kingpin, and the scam that brought down Tinseltown. And it names names. What and was that about? So uh, there was a high-stakes poker ring that would operate at the Four Seasons, uh, the Viper Room and various other hotels where the buy-in was millions of dollars. And Toby Maguire, Ben uh, Affleck, Leonardo DiCaprio. Oh, not my friend Leo. Not yeah, my but he, he was, a, to be honest with you, I'll tell you something. He was a bad player and he was only ever brought there to attract other people. Uh, so what they would do is they would bring the A-list stars and then get other wealthy individuals to, to come in yeah. to hang out with them and then fleece them for cash because none of them could play poker. So we exposed this whole scam that was um, the billion-dollar Hollywood heist. That the real coming names, out because Molly's game they didn't use any names. No, for the most. And in so fact, my co-author, real names. my co-author is someone who played in the game, who is unmasking himself, being involved in the game, and what his role in the game was. Wow! And it's going to. Well, it's going to make a few people very nervous. So I've got that book coming I out. Have time for all this. I've got a book on John Bonet coming out. I have a book on Natalie Wood and the death of Natalie Wood oh, coming boy, out. Yeah, I looked at that with you. Yeah, yeah. I have um, uh, a book on Charles Manson coming How out. Do you absolutely. do all these things, Dylan? I'm very. I'm a busy guy, but I get it done. <laughs> man, oh man, you got. Uh, so you're I was confu- fifteen minutes late today. You're confusing me. You're confusing me. Wow, is this remarkable? Awesome! I'm looking forward to reading all of them. So we we basically, you know, we 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 do something every week, and we call it punk of the week. We could do punk of the day or punk of the minute. What bothers you the most? Could be a person, place, thing, or whatever. What bothers you most, Dylan? Um, the thing that bothers me the most at the moment is Uber. Why? So Uber used, was a fantastic service. I use it every day. I love it. I want to get a car to go from here to here. But all of a sudden now, what would happen is you could book a car and the next available car would come and get you. People that are already taking an Uber, a driver that already has passengers, is responding now and making my wait time longer. Ah. So Uber's my punk of the day. Wow. What about you, Carla, today? That sounds very much like a white person's problem, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. Sorry for the heat. I have another one. (laughs) Take the friggin' subway. Humidity. The heat and humidity is killing me this week. I think that's worse than mine. Global global warming, you think, Carla? I don't know what it is. I think it's just July. It's July. I remember in the 1950s, before global warming, we used to have these friggin' hot days, too. What bothers me is, you know, my congratulations go to those great American ladies, whether they're lesbianic, straight, black, white. I don't care. They're American champions. But to politicize their, what they did with this thing with the purple hair and to knock the president, why don't we try and use this vehicle to bring everything together? If you don't like what President Trump's doing, what a great vehicle to go to the White House and say, Mr. President, can I talk to you? I don't like this. I don't like that. Use that vehicle to bring us together. I'm t- of divisions in this country. I need to get back together. And my uh, accolades go out to Pelosi, believe it or not. Pelosi for the fact that she's not taking that crap from
from these three, four communists, little communist congresspersons over there. And what she's saying, enough is enough. If you have something to say to me, let's talk about it. But don't be putting it on the Twitter every time something happens. Too much division in this country. I'd love people to come together. You like chocolate? I like vanilla. Let's come together and have this country be the great Bring them together instead of the great divider. That's my punk in a week. There's a reason why people like me decide to move to America. Because it's the land of hope and dreams. But at the moment, it's more divided than it ever has been. I say that. And I hope to God that we as a community can start to get along, no matter your colour, yeah. your race, your background, your wealth, anything like that. I, I totally agree. And uh, how can they find you on uh, the social medias? They can't. I'm an, I'm a, uh, an infomaniac, would you say? No, I, I try and avoid social media. I don't want people peeking into my life. Really? So, in other words, but, but people where can people wanna, find your books? Your, your books, is podcasts, everything. The books, uh, they're all going to on Amazon, uh, on Barnes and Noble, uh, on all. They're good, under you as the author. Yep, yep. Uh, all the books Dylan are listed Howard. up there. They start uh, being released in August. The podcasts are where all good podcasts can be found where? everywhere from uh, Spotify to Apple. And what's um, the podcast called? The podcast for uh, uh, Diana is Princess Diana Case Soul. Oh, so the podcast devotes itself to one, one uh, issue. One element. And then oh. the, the, the Diana book is a more uh, wide-reaching mm. exploration of the conspiracy. How could you theories. find us, Carlo? <laughs> You can find us. We're on Twitter at One Tough Podcast on Twitter. Bo is at Bo Deedle on Twitter and at the Real Bo Deedle on Instagram. You can email us. Send us all your emails. One Tough Podcast at Gmail dot com. Uh, we love your questions. We love your suggestions. Keep them coming. Uh, thank you very much to Dylan Howard Dylan, for being thank here. You no, so thank much. you guys. Great to be here. All right. We'll see you next week. All right. Thank you. This is Greg Kelly for Priority Gold. What does it mean to be America's precious metals dealer? It means that you're in touch with the hearts and minds of those who love this country, value our freedom, and want to protect the future. Priority Gold is that precious metals dealer. They've helped thousands of Americans back their retirement with solid gold and silver. Call Priority Gold at 888-506-6439. Receive free shipping, free storage, a free investment guide, and one of the best purchase experiences in the industry. Call now or go to PriorityGold.com.